0: If you would, turn in the Bible to 1 John chapter 2. You may have noticed in the bulletin that we're going right back to the same passage from last Sunday. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 today. Today's message is gonna be on big words. I'm not a real big fan of big words. If you've spoken with me or have been here before, you know that. Big words can get you in a lot of trouble, can't they? They can cause you to look like you are more educated than you actually are. We've all heard the classic story of the New York Yankees catcher Yogi Berra, who told the media that he hit for both sides of the plate because he was amphibious. That's not what amphibious means, right? He's ambidextrous. Knowing Yogi Berra, he probably said that on purpose though just to play with them. Sometimes we try to use big words uh, to impress people, and that is certainly not necessary. May you never, ever desire to be more than what you actually are and let your character speak for itself. Sometimes we use big words and we ask ourselves why? You know, I'm watching ball games on TV all the time and they say he has a, a thigh contusion. And I say, what, what is a contusion? And they say, oh, that's just a bruise, right? It's just a bruise. Why do they say you had a bruise, you know? Why do we have to call it a contusion? The big word threw me off there. Or I can't tell you how many times I've heard somebody say they're lactose intolerant, and I say, what's that mean? They say no dairy. And I said, well, why didn't they say no dairy to start with, right? And big words will kind of do that to you, and you've got to be careful with that. And but sometimes big words are needed, aren't they? Absolutely they are, and that's why in the holy word of God, a book that is written so that anybody can understand it, there are a few big words. By and large, the Bible is not full of many big words. There aren't a lot of big words in the Bible. The Bible is written by God so that children can read it, and it is able to be understood, right? But there are a few big words. Now is a good time for me to remind you that if you have read the Bible before and you thought I don't understand it, then maybe you're using a translation that is hard to read. There are many, many different Bible translations. And some are, are really simple. They're on like second, third, elementary, grade, school level. And that's easy to read. But some are written at a very high level and they're difficult to read. And some were written over 400 years ago and they are difficult to read simply because of that. You can use whatever translation you want to use, but we want to make sure we're understanding it, and that's the case when it comes to big words. Well, in last week's passage, 1 John chapter 2, 1 and 2, on what do we do when we sin, there was a word in there about Jesus, and the word is propitiation. That's a big word. That is five syllables in one single word. pro pi shun." That's a big word, right? And it is hard to use, and many people can't even say it right, and then we don't even know what it means. And so last week, I I made a point to not get deep into that because it is such a big word with a big meaning that we would devote all of this morning to that. Today's message is going to be on propitiation. It'll be good for you. You need to know that. And while you may hate big words just as much as I do, and may you... And while you may never, ever try to even say that word again, that is okay. May you leave here today knowing that God uses the word propitiation, and so you want to understand it. May that be your heart. Read with me at 1 John chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Now here's our here's our phrase. He, that's Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. Could have said he's the savior of our sins, could have said he's the forgiver, he's the redeemer, could have said, like many Bibles say, that he's the sacrifice for our sins. But it doesn't, it says he's the propitiation. And so this morning we will look at what does that mean? If God uses a big word, then we want to know it. This word right here, propitiation, in your English Bible is found four times. First John 2.2, 1 John 4.10, which is just later in this same book, Romans chapter three, what Matt McBroom read a little bit earlier, and Hebrews chapter two, four places in the English Bible where you'll see this word propitiation. But this exact word right here in the original language that which this book was written is only found two times in the whole Bible, only two, all right? And that is 1 John 2.2 and 1 John 4.10. The Apostle John, writing this little letter, also who wrote the Gospel of John, the Apostle John is the only person writing in the Bible, only biblical author that uses this word. But God inspired him to, and we want to understand it. Jonathan Parnell, writing on propitiation, says, God's holiness and our sin... Explain why, at the heart of the Christian message, is the death of Jesus in our place. A death that fundamentally was propitiation. D.A. Carson goes on to say, Listen to this propitiation is what holds together all the other biblical ways of talking about the cross. If the cross of Jesus Christ, Jesus crucified, that God's son died on the cross, if that is all that we say that it is, right? Holy God, sinful man, Jesus becoming sinful man on the cross. God took the holy man, Jesus, and put our sins on him, and God judged and punished and killed Jesus on the cross for us. If all of those Teaching points are true, which they are. They're throughout the Bible, right? All of that is seen in the work of Christ on the cross. The idea or the term that puts it all together is propitiation. That's what we will study here today. Propitiation means the removal of guilt and the purifying of a sinner. That's one thing that it means. And the other thing that it means is the appeasing or satisfying of God in his anger or wrath at the sin, at the sinners. See, when we get into these different words, if we try to not use the word propitiation, we get into words that usually mean one of those two things. Sometimes a Bible will use the word expiation, and that only talks about removing the guilt. Everybody understand that? Expiation means removing the guilt, like what happens to us when we get saved, when we come to Christ, all right? Some translations that you're holding will, you will try to define propitiation by saying atoning sacrifice. I would imagine that some of you all sitting here right now, your Bible does not say propitiation, it says atoning sacrifice, and what that is trying to do is explain propitiation, and it's right, that, that's right. That's a good, that's a good, good, good translation, But in the word propitiation, you have both what it does to the person and what it does to God. And that's what I'm going to try to explain clearly today. The word propitiation says that what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross did something to people and it did something to God. That's why propitiation is such a good word. We've got to think about both. Why was it necessary for us? Why was it necessary for God? So today, I have five points for you that will sum all of this up, okay? Let's keep it rolling. Lunch is waiting. Number one, godly wrath. Godly wrath. Wrath is a real thing. That God can be angry about things is real. And I realize that this is taboo or certainly politically not correct to say this. It's not popular. People don't like preachers that talk about wrath necessarily. But I hope that you know that they're absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, are things that you should get angry about. You get angry, don't you? And sometimes our anger is out of control and we struggle with anger and we need to repent of that and we need uh, God to give us self-control so that we would not be people that are angry. But there are times when we should be angry. And if there are times where you or I should get angry, then there absolutely are times when God, creator God, holy and perfect God should get angry. There is such thing as a godly wrath. Let me give you an illustration that we'll kind of hit on all day today. Take your favorite fast food restaurant. Don't know what it is? Just right down the road here, we have a brand new Taco Bell that got us, what, half a mile closer than our previous Taco Bell. If you like Taco Bell, then think of that. If you like Dairy Queen, think of that. If you like Chick-fil-A, then think of that. But let's say that word got out. Somebody pulled out their phone and videoed it. That there were employees in the back as they were wrapping up the sandwich or burrito, and before they folded it in, that they would always go (laughs) in each one, but wrap it up tightly and give you my pleasure or thank you or, or whatever they say. And let's say that that came out. How do you think the boss should feel about that? Angry, right? He should be upset. He should be mad, he should be and he should do something about it, right? So keep that idea in mind, right? It would be horrible if he's like, it got reported to him, somebody brought the video and said, hey man, do you know this is what your employees are doing, I mean, I was pretty sure that I saw a big old spit wad in my sandwich this time, but I didn't wanna say anything about it, you know, it could've just been something else, but now I've got a video surfacing of, of your employees are doing this, and imagine if him going, yeah, but I'm not really worried about that, man. I mean, I'm getting money in my pocket. There's an in and out. Who, who cares? I'm okay with them spitting in burgers. Wouldn't that make you angry? Wouldn't that upset you? Wouldn't that bother you? So I, I give you that illustration that we'll listen to all day today so that you are just understanding on a very small level that there are things to get angry about. Much more important things than that, Right? much more important things, but there are things to get angry about. And so godly wrath is a real thing. God does get angry, and he should. Psalm 7, verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge, a God who feels indignation every day. God feels indignation every day, the Bible says in Psalm 11. Or If you want to bring it closer to home, the final verse of John chapter three, the story of Jesus and Nicodemus at night, that you must be born again passage. John three says, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. New Testament passage written by the Gospel of John, the Apostle John, the same guy writing this that says, if people will not believe and trust in Jesus, it does not say that wrath awaits them. It says that right now, currently, the wrath of God is on them, and God has it restrained until judgment. The New Testament teaches, the Old Testament teaches that God has wrath, a good, right anger toward sin and sinners. Jonathan Parnell, writing further, says, God is love, not wrath. The reason God wields wrath is because of sin. And the reason sin deserves wrath is because God is holy. He is absolute purity. His triune essence is blinding perfection. Sin belittles God's holiness. And since God is altogether good and right and true and perfect, and there is only one God, and since he is a holy God, sin is against him. And so he rightly feels anger against it. If you do not know that or believe that, then we must start thinking more about what God is like. You cannot let God, you cannot let your idea of God be shaped by what you think God is like. Your idea of God must be informed by what God says he is like. God will tell us who he is. We cannot shape God into what we want him to be. Sometimes he gets mad about this or sometimes he doesn't care about this or if you spit in your burgers, he really doesn't care. No, God is perfectly holy and so he is rightly angry at sin. It's a godly wrath. I remember when I was in high school playing basketball and man, playing a high school sport is consuming in a lot of ways. so many hours put into it. And I remember how much my coach would yell at me. He would yell at me and scream at me and get on me all the time. And I was a three-year starter, and so I had a lot of time to be yelled at in front of crowds and all of my friends and cheerleaders and parents and everybody sitting in the bleachers. And every once in a while, a friend, if, if, you know, after a game, we'd come back to school and a friend would say, dude, man, how do you feel about coach yelling at you all the time? He's like wearing you out during that game. And I remember thinking like, I I don't see it that way. Here's the thing about somebody being angry with you. Do you know that they love you? Are they right to be angry with you? See, what my friends don't know is for every hour that they saw in a game, We had already put in like 10 to 20 hours in practice. My coach had given me rides and bought my dinner and coached me up and loved me and built me up. And I love my coach. He could say anything to me because I knew he was for me. And so when he screamed at me in a game, I was like, okay, yes, sir. Because I knew he loved me. If we think God is wrong because he gets angry, perhaps we don't know that he loves us. And last week, I made a point to say, do not stop now in listening to this message and think that don't sin is the Christian message because it's not. Today, I want to say the same thing, that God being a God of wrath is the only Christian message because it's not. Please don't tune me out at this point. God has a godly wrath. John Stott writing in his famous work, The Cross of Christ, writes, The wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and manifestations. God has wrath because wrath against sin is the fitting expression of a holy God. So number one, godly wrath is a real thing and it is a good thing. Number two, there is godly wrath, but there is also condemning guilt. Stick with me through this. If wrath is real, then guilt is real. And just like there are things that we should get angry about, There are things that you and I should feel bad about. Now, if the first point wasn't politically correct, then this one definitely isn't. There are some things that you and I should feel guilty over. Sinning against God makes us guilty, and it is good to feel that guilt. It is right and proper to feel that guilt guilt. Without guilt for sin, we will not recognize our need for forgiveness. Now, here is a great time for you and I to think about what I talked about a couple weeks ago when I talked about sin and what is sin and what we make out to be sin and what sins we aim at or emphasize. Emphasize. If we are making people feel guilty for things that they should not feel guilty for, we are wrong. We are playing the place of the devil. We should not make anybody feel guilty for things that ought not make you feel guilty. But God should make us feel guilty when we have sinned against a good God. Without guilt, we will not know that we need Jesus, the Savior of the world, and the forgiveness of sins. So back to this fast food restaurant analogy, not only should the manager be angry about that happening, but the people doing it need to know how bad it is, and they should feel guilty about it, right? Not only do you hope the manager is upset about this and would do something about it, but you would hope that the people actually spitting in the food are really bothered now that they had done this, that they recognize that they are wrong. They would feel guilty. See, feeling guilty is a natural thing. We know the phrase guilty conscience, and guilty conscience is very good for us. May you not be the person who thinks that any and all guilt is bad and you shouldn't be having it and so you try to get rid of it. Imagine, imagine what life is like if we don't feel guilty about things. This is terrible. Anything goes, nothing's wrong. Nobody gets mad about anything. Nobody feels bad about anything. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Guilt is to be a good thing when we have done a wrong thing. And we should feel guilt over our sins. There's an old hymn that we sing a lot called Man of Sorrows. I want to read some lyrics to you and see how much this idea of a good God and a wrathful God and yet a condemning guilt is a good thing. It says, Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. Now listen to verse three. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. See, in order for us to sing, Hallelujah, what a savior we had to first say guilty, vile, and helpless. And you do not feel the guilty, vile, and helpless without knowing the holy God. And so condemning guilt is a real thing. And so because of sin, we have a God with wrath and we have people with guilt And this is the present reality that we find ourselves living in. Again, like I said before that point, let me say it again, don't tune me out here. This is not our whole message. These are just real categories that come from truth, come from the Bible, come from our experience in life. That yes, there can be a wrathful God and yes, there is to be condemning guilt. We don't run from those, we don't deny those. We embrace the further truth of God of what God has done about it. We don't let wrath and guilt shape our lives. We let what God has done in his wrath and in our, our guilt shape our lives. And this is precisely where propitiation comes in. Here lies the very exact place for us to look at propitiation. Number one, godly wrath. Number two, condemning guilt. But number three, an appeased judge, a satisfied judge. Propitiation. 1 John 2 2 says he, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins. He had just said so tenderly in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you would not sin. It's what every parent says to their child. It's what we all hope for each of ourselves. Go out today and make good decisions, not wrong decisions, right? Choose your friends wisely. Be careful. Think before you live, right? Don't go screw it up. Don't go out there sinning. That was last week's sermon. If you didn't hear it, please go listen to it. But as soon as he says that tenderly, my little children, he says, but, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, he is the propitiation for our sins. It is under the idea of a holy godly wrath and a condemning guilt that John tells us Jesus is the propitiation. And so we want to know so badly, what does propitiation mean? And it means that there is an appeased judge the definition of propitiate means is to make favorably inclined to appease to satisfy to conciliate that's what it means propitiate means to appease or satisfy jesus has appeased and a has appeased and satisfied the judge of the world Just as the Bible teaches us that God is our maker and our creator, the Bible teaches us that he is our judge. The Bible says that one day, any day, a day that nobody knows, Christ will come back. He will gather up all the people who have ever lived in the history of the world, those who have already died, those who are still living now, and he will judge us. The coming judgment is a real thing that you need to be aware of and you need to be prepared for. God is a judge. But while God is the judge and facing God in judgment sounds so dreadful, the Bible makes crystal clear that anybody in this room or living who will trust in Jesus Christ will escape the judgment. The Bible says in the Gospel of John chapter five that whoever believes in Jesus will escape the judgment. Imagine, imagine like Noah getting on the ark when the flood was coming, you can get in Christ and not be judged by the judge. And the reason why is because that judge, that will judge, is an appeased judge. He is a satisfied judge because of propitiation. Jesus, so how is he? Well, Jesus' death on the cross, the perfect, holy, Sinless, completely obedient Jesus. Appeased, satisfied, and pleased God. For those who trust in Christ, the wrath of God, the good wrath, the godly wrath is gone. He is not angry with you. If you are trusting in Christ, God no longer has wrath for you. It has been removed. It's been dealt with. The Bible says that as Christ hung on the cross, God poured out his wrath on Jesus. God's judgment, his punishment for you has already happened on Jesus 2,000 years ago. He's not upset with you anymore. He's not angry with you anymore. He is not rightfully, holy, angry, or wrathful anymore at those who will trust in Christ. If you're going to trust in Christ in the future, you will see the wrath of God removed from you because the judge has been appeased. It is truly the greatest story ever. It is the most amazing thing. God loves us and he is appeased or satisfied. The very sins that we do, the sins that I will do tomorrow, the sins that you and I will do future have been appeased or satisfied through what Christ did on the cross as his holy, perfect sacrifice satisfied God. Now, what's important about this to understand is it's not just a sacrifice that could appease God. That's why the blood of bulls and goats will never, ever take away sins like the Bible says. That's why I know good work that you could do. If you decide today, well, the one thing I got out of Joshua's sermon is that I am condemned in my guilt, and so I'm gonna leave out of here today, and I am gonna vow to be a better person, and I'm gonna work harder, and I'm gonna love my neighbor better, and I'm gonna try to start doing good. That will not appease the judge. You cannot earn your way into a relationship with God. You cannot be good enough to remove that wrath, but you can trust that he sent Jesus to do the work for you. You can trust that in the death of Christ on the cross, God was satisf- Jesus was satisfying his father in heaven and his wrathful judgment upon sinners. The judge has been appeased. His anger and wrath is gone. He rightly punished sin on the cross. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but Christ took our sins and Christ died our death. On the cross, God wrathfully judged and punished sin. The work on the cross appeased God. What a message. What a truth. So there is godly wrath, and there is condemning guilt, but because of Jesus being the propitiation, he has satisfied the judge, God. But I told you that the reason why propitiation is such a key word here is because it it includes that side of it, what it does to God, it satisfies him, and then what it does for us. Number four, forgiven children. Godly wrath, condemning guilt, appeased judge. Number four, forgiven children. On the cross, it did not just appease God. This is not just what it did for God. This is the beauty of it. This is why I do believe. This is why this is not a man-made religion. This is the revealed salvation that comes from God. This is not just for God. This is for us. This message here today is good for you. It's the best thing for you. It's better than any job you can get, any health you could have. This is an eternal message for you that will satisfy your soul both now and forever. It may change your circumstances. It may not change your circumstances. You may suffer from now until your death in this life that we have found ourselves in, but I assure you in Christ, you will be safe and loved and forgiven from sin and the devil for all. All eternity forever. Nothing, the Bible says, can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. So it didn't just appease God, it also removed the sin of the believer. You say, Well, in the the cross of Christ with propitiation, what did it do for God? Okay, he's no longer wrathful, he's satisfied. Okay, well then what did it do for us? It removed our guilt. It took away our sin. He forgave us. It purified the child child of God. It made us feel and know, not just feel, but it made us feel and know love and acceptance. You may have friends that don't love you and accept you. You may have family that don't love you and accept you. But because of the propitiating work of Christ on the cross, you can matter-of-factly, for certain, forever, be loved and accepted by God forever. You can be forgiven of your sins by a rightfully wrathful God because of what Jesus did. Jesus' work on the cross made us right with God. You can be completely forgiven of your sins because of Jesus. Turn to him. Trust him. Believe him. Start today with saying, my whole life is going to be centered on Jesus. He is the propitiation for my sins. Believe him. But know this, that you must believe him. This is not some transaction where you get it without knowing about it or without caring about it or without being involved with it. This must be a personal faith. This must be a belief that you have. This must be a commitment where you know that there's a holy God and you know that you've sinned against him and you know that he did it through Christ and so you turn to him. You change your direction in life from going whatever you're living for, and we're all living for a bunch of different things, and you literally turn toward Jesus because he is the propitiation for your sins. He's the one who satisfied God for you, and he's the one that forgives you of your sins, removes your sins, and so now you're going about Jesus. You may still keep your job, and you may still keep your family, and you may still have the same hobbies. Some of those things might need to change for the sake of God and for his glory, but you get your life centered on Jesus, This is the forgiven child of God. This is what we believe through and through. This is why propitiation is so important. It satisfied God, but it forgave us, purified us. And that's why Andrew Crawford hits the nail on the head so often here. And the first song we sang today that absolutely set the tone for a sermon on propitiation was before the throne of God above, in which we sang, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, propitiation. The wrathful God, not a big, mean, ugly God, a loving God, is angry because we sin against his goodness. But the cross of Christ, so let's say, say over there is the cross of Jesus, Jesus on the cross. God looks down at the cross and forgives us when we believe. He doesn't look this way and say, are you working hard enough and are you doing enough and are you you behaving well enough and are you obeying enough? That's not in the Bible. He looks at Christ and says, he is propitiating sin. He's making my wrath go away and he's making your sins removed. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. We can be forgiven children. John Stott, again, writing in his famous work, classic work, The Cross of Christ, says, God is the one who makes propitiation. This wasn't man's idea, this was God's idea. It is all due to his mercy and grace. He writes, God does not love us because Christ died for us. Listen to the wording. God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loved us. If it is God's wrath which needed to be propitiated, it is God's love which did the propitiating. Amen. Forgiven children. Lastly, number five. This all sounds well and good. Certainly seems a little bit technical if you ask me about the good old story and the gospel message and the old rugged cross. But what was the motivation behind it? And where did it come from? Propitiation is fantastic to the believer. But where did it originate? And I told you that there are only two places in the entire Bible where you get this word, propitiate. The first is right here, 1 John 2.2. 2, but the second is 1 John 4.10. Turn there and watch John answer the why. Watch John answer the why. First John 4, 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God. Let me stop there for just a second. If you're still trying to convince yourself how spiritual you are and how good of a person you are, and how sure heaven? How sure you're going to heaven because of how much you love God? Read what I just read again. Your love for God is not the standard for love. I'm sorry, it's not. He says this is love, not that we've loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Why is propitiation a thing? Why is it real? Why does the Bible talk about it? Why does wrath have to be talked about and guilt have to be talked about? Why did God go to such great lengths to deal with it? because that's the way he is in his great love as a loving God. There are all sorts of misreputations and misrepresentations in the world of our great God, the one true and living God, the creator God, right? So much misrepresentation in the world today of what the real God is like. Some by people that don't know God and sadly and unfortunately, lots of misrepresentation in the world by people who do actually know God and trust in Christ. But may you and I know deep down, fundamentally, foundationally, what God says about himself. And his son, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins because he loves us, because God is a loving father, because he is. What an amazing thought. John Stott writes again, it is God himself who in holy wrath needs to be propitiated. God himself who in holy love undertook to do the propitiating. And God himself who in the person of his son died for the propitiation for our sins. Thus, God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger by bearing it his own self in his own son when he took our place and died for us. There is no crudity here to evoke our ridicule, only the profundity of holy love to evoke our worship. He loves us. And he decided to satisfy his wrath against sinful people like you and me by killing his son for us. In the cross of Christ, God is satisfied. In the cross of Christ, we are forgiven through faith. Believe it. Stop trying to work yourself back into a good mood. Stop trying to work yourself back into a clear conscience. It ain't gonna happen. If you walked in here guilty today, you're going to feel guilty by tomorrow afternoon if you will not trust in Christ. I'm not saying you're not guilty. I'm saying we're all guilty. But through Christ, God has propitiated the very sins we have. What a thought! God is the judge, God is the sacrifice, and God is the advocate. If you will trust him, you will be at peace with God forever. Let's pray. Father, we love you because you first loved us. And we thank you, dear God, for your word and for propitiation. God, we're not smart enough to use big words just casually but we're needy enough to know and need to know your big words. Father, thank you for the propitiation of sins and that Jesus is it. Father, thank you for the removal of sin and the purifying of hearts. And thank you, God, for the just and appeased and satisfied God that you are. Oh, Father, thank you that we can have a conversation about guilt. Remaining in guilt, living in guilt, suffering and being weighed down by guilt is not the way we're supposed to live life. We are to bring our guilt to you, knowing that you love us. May we run to you and not from you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.